Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Am I supposed to start? Hello, everybody. Go ahead. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my easternly direction, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. I just got recording. I don't know how, what it's going to come out to. It could be a four-hour four podcast known as WrestleNomics Premium. That can be frightening to people to think that that would be enjoyable. But we covered WWE quarterly results. We covered the economics of indie shows. We covered the, the, the amazing 1974 movie by Vern Gagne starring The Wrestler. The story of Mike Bullard, The Wrestler. Yes, you'll find out why Vern Gagne is in fact invincible. No one can beat him. He's the best. He's just the best there's ever been at, at, at anything. And pro wrestling does not get enough respect. So we, we covered all those things in excruciatingly entertaining depth. Um, and, and so uh, you, you will be able to listen to that at WrestleNomics uh, Premium, which is at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. $5 will get you access. And in one week, you will basically be paying like a dollar per hour. Of, of is this one podcast a month you get? This no, you get every podcast we've ever done, but we do a new one every week. So you're going to be getting an enormous amount of content in a in a single month. You're probably getting like fifteen to twenty hours of, of content. So there's a new a premium podcast every single week, even though I pay monthly. That is correct, and uh, I, I don't want to bug everybody too much on the free show here because we are doing the free show here, and we're going to talk about different stuff. That that's the beauty of WrestleNomics Radio is that we don't talk about the same stuff on both shows. We t- we try to do different angles. So on this show, we're going to talk about WWE. We're going to talk a little bit about Q1, but we're going to really focus more on the macro business trends, the uh, the the bariosometer, if you will. Mm. Uh, yes. Then we're going to do New Japan with a bunch of words I can't say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about All In and uh, maybe even get into the ethics of, of All Inicism. Oh, are we going to talk about that? I don't know. You never know. This is going to be a short show by relative right. standards, um, you know. Back in the day, twenty minutes was probably considered a long show. So, uh, you know, this is things, yeah. things inflation here. But uh, this is a new era for WrestleNomics. Uh, there may be logos to come, but yes, this is WrestleNomics Radio. You're listening to the other show is Premium. It's WrestleNomics Premium. It sure is. Uh, yeah. Did you have a good week? Uh, I guess so. It's about any other week. Uh, I lived. I survived it. And uh, there was a uh, WQ1 conference call, and uh, that happened. 
Yeah, we, and, we uh, covered the financials, the 8K, the 10K, the training, the KPI, the investor presentation, and the transcript of the show all on the uh, the premium show, which was a really entertaining conversation. Though uh, this week we we took it a little easy, you know, we didn't cover it live in real time, excruciating ourselves to you know six a.m. wake ups and whatnot. My wife started her new job this week. Oh, she is working at a uh, a courthouse, and so she oh. has to get to the courthouse at a certain time every morning, and that is much mm-hmm. earlier than she is used to getting places. And so this is this is tough for her because we're getting up at like six thirty every morning, which for me isn't so bad, but for her is is uh, excruciating. You have to get up earlier too. I do because we're either I'm trying to get out and move my car and, and go to work at the same time, or I just find it goes better if I get up. So then she can't yeah. just you know think you know take. Are a you a light sleeper? You like you can't go back to sleep? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty light sleeper. So mm. yeah, and plus the dogs need to get get up and taken care of and i'm just trying to get us out and moving mm. get it going and it's downtown minneapolis so we even like carpool occasionally where oh, i'll really? go and drop her off because it's a pain to park downtown it's like 20 bucks a day to park so mm. it's it's a uh, it makes a big financial difference over the course of a week if if we can carpool or use transportation or other things so it's a lot to do so it's been a week but it's been a good week she's really happy with her new job and i'm really happy that she's working again and my job's gotten a little bit better not much but a little bit better Yes, you're, are you slightly less miserable? Maybe. <laughs> Depends on the day. All right. But uh, WWQ1 numbers came in. Basically, the story here was that they they did really well on, of course, their – let's just get to the big one at the top here. Oh, I'm on the wrong one. I'm on the 10Q. I want to go to corporate.com slash WWE.com here. Look at the strong first quarter things. 187.7 million. It was uh, on par with last year, and then they did all this weird accounting stuff that basically means that they have to give two numbers for everything. Anyone asking about the accounting stuff, they call it ASC Topic 606. Basically, it's as far as I can tell, it's just basically do you – take your full payment for a contract at once or do you split it out over the year based on different milestones so instead of say taking your whole video games royalty payment at once maybe you would come up with estimates for how much you're you've earned each quarter and then put that in into quarters as opposed to taking it all at at once so Mm -hmm. uh, as a result it it causes some of the year-over-year comparisons here for wwe to not be as favorable and so they they bothered to kind of show it on both both ends and uh, no, none of the Saudi Arabia money is showing up yet. Uh, we do not know how big the deal is. And in fact, what we were kind of surprised to learn, and you can speak on this for a second, Brandon, is they, they kind of lowered the amount of granularity we get here in the financial outcomes, don't they? Well, they did. We used to get, I think it was nine or ten segments, and they've condensed them all down to three. So the only segments that we have now are media, consumer products, and live events. So... And and at the same time, they, they're telling us a little bit more about things like core content rights, which is on SmackDown. They're telling us a little yes. bit more about the cost per segment. So instead of having a giant corporate and other thing, which just has a, an enormous negative cost, they've tried to reallocate some of that cost out to each um, segment so that you could actually say, OK, the percentage value of, say, uh, added dollars in network versus added dollars in live events, how do they compare – and you can go to you know these different um, the trending schedule or something, and you can look at those margin percentages differently and say, oh, you know, I have a twenty seven percent margin on on media, but I only have a nine percent margin on live events, and I have a twenty six percent percent margin on on co- uh, consumer products. So it's an overall, it's a twelve percent margin, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, uh, which in the past would have been a little bit harder to get at. 
uh, specifically when you think of like operating income percent margin was 8% for 2016 and 9% for 2017, uh, a 12% for 2018 Q1 is, is a higher number. Um, so it, it's interesting in that sense that they've, they've done some consolidations. And what really bugged me is they got rid of the geographic comparison. So they used oh. to say North America, UK, Europe, uh, emerging markets, Middle East and Africa, uh, South America slash Mexico. And they stopped that. And so it's going to actually be a little harder for us to figure out the Saudi Arabian effect. Um, same thing, though, like mix match challenge that came in this quarter. We think it was worth maybe one and a half million dollars. And so we, we do a lot more talking in depth about the results in Q1 in the premium show. And so we do hope the people that care about that will shell out the five bucks, check it out. And uh, if, if you really don't enjoy the show, come back. I'll give you a, I'll give you a refund. I promise you. If you hit me up on Twitter. But what I wanted to talk to um, Brandon about on this show is is WWE as a evolution of the last five or ten years here. You, you could say maybe the last few years we've had the, the post-WWE network era. Um, and so I was, I was kind of curious about – It has been five years. No, four years. It's been four over four years. years now since the W network launched. And I, I think I was telling you offline uh, a long time ago when this recording first started that um, – I was actually I'm, I'm working on an article that that uh, prompted me to watch the first ever NXT takeover. Well, I guess NXT live TV special in February 2014, which is the first ever live event ever broadcast live on the network. And I uh, watched it on mute while listening to the first ever uh, NXT conference call that went along with it from Paul Levesque, which is a very interesting experience. But I guess I just brought that up because it, it's really uh, you could say it's the uh, the threshold of a new era in uh, maybe wrestling history. What What were your thoughts in terms of kind of looking at it now versus then? Do you think NXT has gotten less polished, more polished? It's definitely gotten more polished. It's become there's there's little conversations in there about like people are speculating. Well, do you ever see uh, NXT becoming something that you can tour just out even more outside of Florida because they were still doing the Florida Loop even then? But um, there's speculation about touring with NXT, which happened, and there's speculation about taking a takeover or taking a live TV special into a bigger arena and accompaniment with WrestleMania, which which has happened and more, you know. So I think you get the impression that yes, there was a lot of speculation at the time, the dawn of the network as far as NXT goes, but it even exceeded, you know, where where WWE was ready to imagine it. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's kind of the key here is that the WWE really had to rewrite their playbook when they decided to go on the network. And it was something they started working on probably 2009-ish onwards, and it took them a long time to launch it. But you, you also see that they had very different views of what this could evolve into. And it, it's intriguing to see in some ways NXT is arguably one of their biz, biggest successes to come out of the network is the the viability of instantly creating a third brand. They, and, they clearly just about at their own admission, they underestimated the, the avidness that their subscribers wanted in ring content, as they call it wrestling. Uh, they didn't expect people wanted wrestling so much. And so they invested early on in things like legends house and uh, holy foley and things like that, that we don't get viewership numbers for the network, but by all indications, these shows weren't terribly successful. They were fairly expensive and didn't I, I, contribute much to subscribership. No, they didn't. I, I will give some defense for legends house in the sense that they tried to sell that. Go ahead. Defend legends house. Well, they tried to sell <laughs> right. it before it, the it was taped years before it actually yes. appeared on the network. Yeah. And, and, 
so but yes, I think their biggest learning in the early years was all this premium network specific content was not worth nearly as much as just doing a good wrestling show. And and recently in the Business Partner Summit, uh, Triple H had a, a quizzical side where he said 1.1 million. And he, he said that the viewers for, for NXT were 1.1 million. We don't know exactly what that's supposed to mean. If he just means that out of the 1.7 million people that subscribe to the network, 1.1 of them have watched NXT, watch it on a weekly basis. If that's the, you know, the impression that, number that what? for a, a takeover. But but he basically implied there's about a million people that watch NXT. And I thought that was an interesting number because we think about something like TNA and that's how many people watch TNA now. Do you do you know from your um, from your a few hundred thousand watch it on pop TV? Exactly. So I was going to say, in a sense, launching the network was a quick way to say, I've got a product. I want to put it in front of a million people. Does that make it a viable thing? And I think the short of it was that once they showed they had both stars you know, stars that connected with people that they cared about, A, coming a lot of them from, you know, the indie scene, and B, um, presenting them in a in a thoughtful way that was meaningful, that was compact, and that, you know, had feuds that led to events that made sense. I, I, they were very successful with that. And, and, of course, it also just reinforced the idea that people were hungry for secondary wrestling content that was different than what WWE was doing on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, and I think another thing I got from re-listening to that first NXT conference call is that I think we forget how much um, I don't want to overstate this, but like how much people were watching NXT on Hulu. Um, at least among there was a, a groundswell of fans talking about it online who were watching it on Hulu, and which that was that was the prime way to watch it. I, I for, kind of forgot about that. Was that uh, you know you can watch it through Hulu along with when you when you look up WWE on Hulu you see Raw and SmackDown and things like that and even main event but you also you know it wasn't on the internet or it wasn't on the WWE network at the time and that's how people were were keeping up with it. So let's talk a little bit about kind of WWE as a macro of evolution here uh, over the last ten years. Um, Two thousand five WWE breaks the $400 million mark after flirting with it in 2002 at 399.2. In 2005, they, they end up closer to, I think, 402.8. And then you have uh, 2006, where it's 415. 2007, which it jumps up to 485. 2008, which is huge, 527. And then it goes down for a couple of years. It actually, it just really hovers for about five years there. It's kind of held in a holding pattern. 475, 477, 484, 484. You know, they, they really didn't grow very much uh, on a total revenue basis between 2009 and 2012. And then and you, you, can we make this Barrios centric? When does Barrios start with this company? 2008 or seven? Oh, it might even be before that. Uh, let's see here. George Barrios. W- I want to say he just finished his. Well, you might be right. He just finished his first decade. Um, so let, I'm just trying to see if they said how long George has been with the company. Has George accepted your LinkedIn request yet? <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked George for a LinkedIn request, though I am very happy. He started in March of 2008. Um, I am very happy to see that that pro wrestling Wikipedia, the pro wrestling does have a George Berrios um, uh, entry. So good. They, they should. And um, this is a question I've been meaning to spring on you for weeks, but I've, I've, it's, it's never uh, come up yet. Uh where do we think like, George Barrios is not going to be one of these bit players in, in wrestling history who are just like, oh, yeah, he's one of those executives who is with the company for a couple of years and then he was gone. This is a guy who's uh, 
guided this company, the biggest company in the world, the biggest wrestling promotion that's ever existed, through some pretty serious changes that have changed the wrestling industry in some very significant ways. Yes and no. Um, we've seen other WWE executives come and go. You know, there, there's been people who've been the heads of huge divisions who were, you know, Donna Goldsmith or something, who was, you know, a Vince right hand person until she wasn't. And so there is that element where if you're not a McMahon, you're always di- dis, uh, disposable, at least it seems like. And then you have people like Basil DeVito or something who's been, you know, kind of a right hand man for years and years or Kevin Dunn to that effect that, you know, they have this influence on decisions and they go as far as even getting on the board of directors, you know, which which says a lot about how much confidence is being put in you. And then when you go through all those board of directors names year after year, you start to realize, oh, my gosh, this guy was super close. He was the CFO. He was a big deal. And then nothing. Then they just disappeared. Then so you're like, where's Michael Selick? And you're like, oh, he's gone. He, he He's not part of us. And and so you do have this us and them mentality where, you know, you read Donna now. She she makes it seem like, no, she's not close to Vince at all. And there was no connection there. And yet at one point she was a big deal when it came to being really close to the McMahon. So I, I do wonder about that sometimes, about how much of it is just, you know, this is Vince's inner circle today. And next thing you know, it's going to be gone. Uh, mm-hmm. That said, I I've, got promoted to co-presidents. Uh, I do think that's a bigger deal. Along with Michelle Wilson. Yeah, I do think that's a bigger deal. And that was one that made me finally say, okay, this is for the long term, is mm-hmm. is I didn't see them. Because honestly, after the last TV negotiations almost fell under, and I know they got more money, but they got much less than they expected and got a giant lawsuit. I really thought George and Michelle might have, you know, they, they were basically being positioned as the fall guys at the time. If you notice, Steph and Vince... Uh, I'm, our uh, Triple H and, and Steph were, were very much insulated from all that kind of stuff at the last negotiation rounds because they di- they wanted the, the failure not to be tainting them. And in some ways, I feel like the WWE Network could have enveloped them and thrown them out because of, you know, the bluster that they started with and the fact that, you know. And we know how many executives they went through. Exactly. Uh, and then for so many years, it was like, it's somebody else's mistake. It's somebody else's mistake. And then I would ask, well, who's in charge? And they finally were like, we're in charge. We're the ones who make this. And, you know, for a while there, it really seemed like, oh, gosh, you, you guys might not be able to turn this around. And what they finally did is they just came to grips of reality of where it was and what they could do with it. And, um, more or less won over the investment community. I mean, the winner, the win for George Barrios and all them has not necessarily been the fact that they have become, yes, they've, they've gained a lot of revenue, but I mean, if you look at their operating income, uh, for a company of their size, it's not that impressive compared to others. What has come to make them more impressive is just the fact that they basically won over all of the other, you know, investors and other companies that see the value in them, where in the past they never saw the value at all. So, I mean, like I was saying, from 2006 to 2010, they had operating income of 65 million to 82 million. In 2017, they did 75.6 million. That's not that impressive when you consider the fact that they were a 400 to 500 million dollar company, and then they went up to be an 800 million dollar company. And so it just says that they really had to change their business. And so some of it is not necessarily that their economic strategy has been so much more genius than all these other people in the past. Some of it is just lucky timing, right? They got they got to be in a time when contractual television obligations, live events went through the roof and they sold that message and it worked. Some of it is they saw the future and they embraced it. 
in terms of there was a turnaround strategy at some point to say we need to develop a network. And if you hear George talk about it, he doesn't talk about it as a, you know, uh, some ancillary department that he doesn't know what's happening. He intimately understands his strategy for the WWE network. That is what he is excited about. You know, would you agree? Yeah, I I think when he, he answers questions like about tiering, he's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not wrestling product. No, no, no. I, no. But but he's excited to talk about the idea of what is our ecosystem strategy and and what 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 is eyeballs and digital content and what's the future going to be. And and I guess most, my feeling is like it's becoming harder and harder to tell the entire history of pro wrestling without talking about George Barrios. I think it's harder and harder to find information about WWE that doesn't have George Barrios's uh, thumbprint on it. I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, it's amazing to me to see how much – the comeback story to me is Michelle because she seemed like someone who was just getting completely overshadowed and pushed to the side. And to have them both kind of come up here and now both be co-president and it's so much cleaner in terms of she seems like she's on equal standing with George. Because for a long time there, it really seemed like George was number one. Michelle is number two. She and, joined the company about one year after George did. She joined February 2009 according to her LinkedIn page. And and there was always confusion too about what Michelle's role was versus what was Steph's role for a long time there about, you know, in terms of, of the uh, – I don't want to say marketing, but, you know, just her – what was her old title? Chief um, marketing officer. Yeah. Steph or, or um, chief Michelle. Chief brand officer, Stephanie McMahon. And and Michelle was the chief marketing chief, officer. Chief marketing. marketing. Yeah. I think revenue was a part of her title too. Yeah. And George at one point got strategy added to his title. So, I mean, I, I, I do think I, – I had argued before that from a – if if part of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame is about your drawing power or your ability to create revenue, the decisions that the the unheralded executives in WWE did to turn it into an eight hundred million dollar company probably deserve some credit towards drawing power. Because a lot of that is not coming from live events exploding. It's coming from getting the network segment up to $200 million by 2017. Is, is that a praiseworthy accolade, though? Like, so in 2017, $801 million compared to, let's say, before the network launched, $508 million. But a lot of that increase in revenue is because they, they changed a pay-per-view business that was splitting a lot of that revenue with pay-per-view providers and pay-per-view carriers. And now they're taking more of that money just in-house, direct-to-consumer, as they say. I mean, I think that's why I think profit is important to talk more about and that it, it but it's, it's also more it's, difficult it's, to talk about. But yeah. Yeah. But it, but it's why it's so silly to me that so often, you know, they talk about we grew this business to be 100 million, but their operating income is actually lower, especially as a percentage and in some cases actual dollars than when they were before a pre-network era. Uh, they've made adjustments, though, and I, I do think in an adjustment time frame, they've done a decent job. I, I think we went through a dark time with a network where it was very unclear how they were trying to position it as their total strategy. We went through a period where – And this company, seemed, remember, in 2014 basically sacrificed this entire year of, of profits just to launch this network, which is a whole I, – I don't believe you can argue that they've completely dug themselves out of yet. Oh, no. I mean there's several – things that happened by doing that number one they inter interfered with their relationship with the domestic tv and the international tv uh, providers yeah. and it had a serious impact on the dollars that they received in change that made the investors pissed off because they got much lower than they expected and that was kind of their trial run of is wwe a stock that is worth paying attention to and they, they kind of flubbed that up 
the fact they got sued by all those shareholders says a lot. Two, the network completely cannibalized that pay-per-view business that was profitable at a 50% margin. And it went to a network thing that is at sometimes 25%, sometimes 30%. It's a much cheaper thing. And so there's, so it's funny where people will say, well, I have the same number of people. But you're like, no, you actually need twice as many people to get the same number of profit dollars. Now, did they well, do some right? Unless you tier it out into a premium tier someday, but that's another well, story. And then the last thing I'd say is actually t- connected to that, which is they box themselves in a corner so early on in their network decision. That they basically said WrestleMania's value to you, the consumer, is $9.99 and we'll give it to you free if you want it. And they reinforce that message year after year. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous because essentially you're giving up those long-term value on that opportunity on the WWE Network by so quickly boxing yourself in. You know, Can you imagine if you were some kind of, of, of a podcasting network and you said for just $5, I will mm-hmm. give you all the premium content that uh, we produce every week, even if it's like four hours in a single week. Mm-hmm. That'd be absurd. But if you want to pay uh, $54.95 for it, we'll take that as well. <laughs> but it, just that idea. Yeah, but I, I think that was, to me, the three cardinal sins of the, the network. Now, let's flip it around. What were the geniuses of the network? Number one, the DTC. They bought consumer data. That's really what they're buying here. Is they, they always felt like they had an arm's length relationship with the with uh, the consumer because at best what they could do is they could pay time warner to send you a flyer about their event but they didn't actually have your information they they they, they you had to pay a third party to get to mm-hmm. market to you they and they got your information if you bought merchandise online through their store but they didn't know what pay-per-views you bought they didn't know how often you bought them they didn't know how you watched it they didn't know if you watch it by yourself or with other people they didn't know if you made money or didn't make money you know they, they had very limited information about you and, and they had tons of different uh, accounts, and they weren't even all linked, right? So the idea – I'm sure you bought stuff on catalog, and then you later bought stuff online, and they probably didn't have those two things integrated with each other and, and so forth. And they didn't know when you bought live att- tickets or anything else. So th- they had a lot of opportunity to, to learn more, and that's what the network is to them is that they're paying basically a premium to acquire you as a user, and then they understand who you are better that way. Do they know when we buy tickets now though? Not they talk true. as if we, if they do, don't they? Well, they know they can give me marketing messages to try we, to sell me tickets. We wonder if there's some ability that they have to connect pay, um, uh, credit card like numbers hmm. with to say I, this is a person who lives in this state. The last four of the credit card they used is this, and then here's a person who who's a subscriber, and we think they live in this state. Hmm. You know, they might try to connect you up that way. I have no idea. Maybe like I said, stuff up too. Maybe they're connecting that. I don't know. Exactly. So, I mean, there's a lot of information they want from it. Now, where else has WWE really evolved or changed their business over time here? Well, they for a little while, they tried this on-demand TV VOD type stuff, you know, classics on-demand and whatnot. And that got as big as probably 8 million bucks in 2008. But that fizzled out. They had to give that up when they started the network. You know, it was still doing $5.5 million in 2013. Isn't that shocking? Like, you, you don't think about that. That it was still a five and a half million dollar business in 2013 when they when they started the network, but that just speaks so much to. Um, also, they had so many uh, uh, WWE pay per views online that they sold as well, and they made a few million dollars doing that, and they gave that up as well. Right. Uh, they they gave up all of their advertising television business. This is the number one thing that people don't understand when they look at WWE rights over time is that they had 78 million dollars of TV advertising in 2002. That number fell 
from 36 million in 2005 to 7 million in 2006. Why? Because they gave up that all to basically go back to USA Network. That was that was basically the concession at the time is that that USA Network would get all the advertising money. WWE wouldn't get it. I think Canada was the only market left that they were really getting a lot of advertising money in. Um, and at the time, though, they were able to keep their North American TV rights fee basically still growing. It was $54 million in 2005 and it was $55 million in 2006. So they basically gave it up for the rights to get their TV rights uh, money up. And that was, you know, in the in the end here, you could argue maybe that was the best decision for them because would you rather be getting guaranteed contractual TV uh, money right now or trying to argue with advertisers about why, quote unquote, sports entertainment is the best investment for them? Right. So in, in, in only so you mentioned in 2002, their their entire television segment was worth three hundred and thirty four million. And then I look, when does it actually start to beat that? It doesn't beat that until 2012 when it hits one hundred and forty one. Why do they – part of that is because they went back to the USA Network after being on Spike, right? But So why, why did they make that trade just because of the uncertainty related to TV advertising? Why did they make the trade? They made the trade because USA had them by the balls. Um, oh, so? Uh, Spike TV basically knew that they were being played. Mm-hmm. And so you so WW, so WWE put out an announcement that said we are no longer negotiating with WWE. Mm-hmm. And so USA Network knew, okay, we got WWE by the balls. If they don't make a deal with us, then they have no TV group to go to. Without getting too sidetracked, how, how, what, what transpired there? Like why did uh, that relationship with Viacom fall apart? Oh, I think they instantly knew that. Because I think it was a combination of, um, you know, if you think about all the things that changed during that time, there was leadership changes. So that was part of it. Uh, Bonnie Hammer, for instance, wasn't at the head of, of USA at the time that they left USA. She had gone, I think, to the sci-fi for a couple of years. So part of what had changed is when they came back, Bonnie Hammer was back in control. So it was someone they knew and they trusted. Part of it was, I think, with Viacom, you know, they rebranded Spike. They, they, you know, Sunday Night Heat used to be on MTV and then it got moved to Spike and all the other things. It was, you know, they could see over and over again that that there was less interest in them. And Viacom basically, you know, snuck UFC on them. I was going to say, is UFC a factor here? I think so. I think that's part of it is that they suddenly realized, oh, my God, we're not as popular as as this thing that we're basically building up right next to us. Yeah. Or at least it's making us not be as popular, uh, though. I mean, to be to be fair, they they, they helped launch it. I wouldn't say they necessarily were um, necessarily were, were the exact same uh, uh, time frame. But, yeah, I think that was a little the, bit of the, it. The narrative goes that, you know, these networks have always tried to put, whether it's USA or Spike, have tried to put programming on right after Raw to try to get it over, to try to build an audience, and it hasn't really worked except for The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah, that, that it was aired directly after Raw, and it was very similar to wrestling programming in terms of what they were trying to get people to enjoy. So th- that helped. That and was the, part of it. The, the launch of The Ultimate Fighter really coincides with UFC gaining a lot of popularity. Yeah, and and – I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, certain players at Spike really wanted to keep them. But I, I think at the time, WWE, you know, sensed that their business was cooling off. Um, I think they were blaming. I think there might have been a little bit of blame, too, where they, you know, kind of would say, hey, our business got colder. Hey, we went to this other network, you know. And, and similar to our discussion about Fox, you know, you, you always see it's like starting a new job. You always have high hopes, right? It's much easier to imagine you're going to get paid more or do more at your new job that's going to be more fulfilling. And it's easier to than imagining your current job and then saying, okay, here's how I'm going to 
put it in a five-year plan to make this so much better. Well, I start every day as if it's my first day on the job. <laughs> something so. Linda McMahon taught us, something Vince McMahon taught us. Yeah. Um, you know, other business areas like magazine publishing. Magazine publishing was a $15 million business in 2002. It was an $11 million business in 2010. It was a $6 million business in 2013. And then they folded it up because of the network. And when I say because of the network, it's because Q3 comes around and basically uh, the network's losing a bunch of money and WWE needs to cut costs as fast as it can. And so one of the first things it realizes is that the magazine publishing is just not going to cut it anymore. And so they they fold it into um, digital media, ironically, and uh, just kind of call it a day. Yeah, it wasn't very profitable towards the end. We've got Weebda on, on magazine publishing at 400000 100000 yeah. for, for oh, a year. I mean – yeah, exactly. So you can tell it was a dying thing. But it's interesting to me to see how like some things left on. But then yet yeah, we're in this new era. We're in this – when I talk about five years, it's kind of our fifth year of this new version of what is WWE going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, something like, like live events. Live events was $80 million in 2002, was about $83 million in 2006, was $105 million in 2008. And some of this was because the European markets really exploded for a couple of years there and it gave them some extra money. Mm-hmm. Um, then by 2013, they're at 111 million. So you had about six years there where they barely moved the, the needle from 106 to 111 million, where they're just kind of fluttering around this 105, 106 million dollar range. Then in the last three years here, WWE has, has grown their live events business from 110 million in 2014, 125 million in 2015, 144 million in 2016, 151 million in 152 in, in 2017. So it's an impressive strategy. And and I found that it's a twofold strategy. Yeah. It's volume and it's, it's price. higher attendances. It's uh, not. And that's, what, anyway. and that's what the fascinating part is that you look at the last kind of booms that WWE had for their live events and it really came from finding marketplaces and bleeding them. So we're going to Mexico, put it up, let's do it. We're going to Europe, let's, let's do it. Here they just kind of said, nope, I – um." I, I think I think uh, uh, we should do a larger viewpoint of just saying I'm going to be happy getting 5,400 or 5,300 people a show like they did in Q1. Be down 2% year over year when you take out Royal Rumble. I'm okay with that because I'm going to run eight more events than I did a year ago. And that's very valuable. I mean occasionally you're going to get the, the golden goose like the Saudi Arabia deal where you know you might be talking about – you and I were saying on the other show, maybe it's worth $20 million. I'm thinking it's 20 to 25 for a year. Maybe it's worth 20 million for one for all we know. We don't know, but that's a, that's a super lucrative thing. But again, you're only going to see maybe 5 million of that turn into profit. There's going to be a large cost associated with that $20 million. Don't, Mm. don't, don't get us wrong, but that's a huge bump. You know, you can see live events is an area which is tough for them to move the needle on unless you use a volume model. What are the helpers to the volume model? Number one, figure out a way to have different brands so that you can run them independently because you can never just run an A show and a B show where you're just taking the lesser stars and putting them on the B show. You have to actually be able to say, this is my brand X and this is brand Y. Uh, And so running around SmackDown separate is really powerful. You do that. And then on top of that, you have NXT. NXT Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily kill it, but like you said, like you and I have seen, it, it averages what seven, eight hundred people when you go across all fifty-five events in a quarter. And if you go down to just the the non Lakeland Loop, the non Florida shows, brand, you know, Premium it's, it's eight hundred to twelve hundred. Right. And I think another thing that's happened here too is average ticket prices have increased over time, 
Yes. And why have average ticket prices increased over time? I, I, w- I would like I would speculate that there's maybe there's two things going on, and that this audience is becoming more ardent and more more passionate, more willing to pay, especially high ticket prices on the floor close to the ring. And maybe, but why does that happen? Maybe the network has something to do with it, that people are able to just consume so much stuff now, either through the network or just through other stuff online that's free. Um, and I think another thing that has happened is WWE is gradually gaining interest and reaping the rewards of having been this brand that people grew up with for all these years. And uh, it, it's a it's something that, um, it has a nostalgia payoff to it more as the years go on. I, I would even say it's more than just that people change their behavior. I think WWE changed their behavior. I think WWE figured out, oh, my God, we're not charging enough for our big events. Mm-hmm. We are not um, basically bilking the people that have it to spend. And maybe it coincides with the network because you could argue previously, if, say, you were a super fan, you spent – 12 times a year, 60 bucks, right? 700 some dollars. Now I'm asking you to spend 10 bucks, 12 times, 120 bucks. That's $600 less you have, you're going to spend on wrestling. So you're saying fans are taking their pay-per-view money that they used to spend and putting it into ticket money and travel money. Yes. And it's also important to always remind people that only half of the pay-per-view money went to WWE. So even when I say 720, WWE only had 360 of that bucks. So, so suddenly they're spending. They have about two hundred and sixty bucks um, that that WWE has to get from them on live ticket sales. And it's not uncommon to say, you know, you and I did our math for how much we spent on WrestleMania weekend. Mm. Uh, you know, and for WrestleMania tickets and whatnot, you're going to spend several hundred dollars. I, I'm not saying WrestleMania every time, but but just that idea of I think they figured out. Oh my God. We don't have to treat ourselves like we're only a $100 ticket for floor. Mm-hmm. A $200 ticket or a $1,000 ticket, people will actually pay. And you don't need to have a wide audience. You need to have a targeted audience. And maybe that came from their DTC information that they got by doing the network. Maybe it came from their analytics department. Maybe it came from them just understanding the general ticket trends. Because I do think there's actually been a general increase in ticket prices in entertainment generally over the last five years here. If you read up on like, you know, what's been happening and then just different marketing techniques that have been used to kind of um, tie the super fans to what they have to spend to get the best tickets. And I think over these years, too, there's more and more people with smartphones in their pockets. And I think we have an increasingly savvy fan base that knows what house shows really are, that they're not televised events that where anything of consequence hardly ever happens. And uh, but but those big shows are bigger than ever. And they're able to charge more ticket higher ticket prices than ever, and they're able to turn them into these big weekends that encompass an NXT takeover and and, and a Raw in the same city, and maybe even a SmackDown in the same city. So it becomes like a vacation for people. Exactly, making the event out of it and travel packages. That was a new thing they started. You know, 2014, two million dollars. 2016, three million dollars. 2017, I don't remember the number. Uh, might be hidden somewhere into the uh, the 10K from 2017. Let's see here if I can find it. Travel packages. Uh, travel packages last year were 3.36 million, 3.6 million dollars. So I mean, they, they they they've grown that, and it's it's only a couple million, but it's a good example in my mind of how you can make that number higher. Is you you find that area and you begin to exploit it, and they did a really brilliant job of that in my mind. Um, so I I really applaud them for that. Uh, 
licensing is an interesting situation because licensing used to be $20 million. Then it was about $28 million by 2005. By 2006, it was $32 million. By 2008, it was $60 million. And then it's set between $40 million and $55 million for the last 10 years. And, and if anything, I would say that is the one area that I think that they have done the least amount of development on in terms of moving it to the next level. And yeah, they do do more what they call like global revenue sponsorships where they, you know, integrate the whole brand like KFC. But what, what's video licensing? Game it's, it's video games. It's action figures and toys, online games, right? Yeah. Um, let me see how they video define games. it in, in the 10K here. Uh, licensing. A lot, lot from toys. That's one of their biggest portfolio items here. Uh, some, some t-shirts might go into licensing where it's not the t-shirts they make, but you might go to like a, a, a you know, department store and you'll see something like a mm-hmm. Macho Man thing yeah. that maybe they're not making. But it's mainly video games, toys, and apparel. Mm-hmm. But it, it could be other things. They have 200 licensees worldwide. Uh, Take-Two Interactive is obviously going to be one of their biggest ones. All the mobile game stuff like WWE Supercard. That's going to somewhat show up there too because in, in a sense they're not really – they don't sell that game. They're, they're licensing their stuff to a mobile game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then music, all, all the music stuff um, uh, goes under licensing I believe. So uh, I- interesting though just that that's an area where I always thought they could do more or they could be getting better at. And again, not every area is going to grow. Like home entertainment here grew big. It went from 15 million to 35 million to 50 million to 60 million. You know, in 2008, it was a 60 million dollar business, and then it started to fall apart. You know, went to 60 million to 39 million. A couple of years later, it's 27 million, and then between 2014 and 2015, it went from 27 million to 13 million, which is partially going to be the company itself driving that, and a lot of it just being the retail slide. 2016 to 2017, it went from 13 million to less than nine million, and it basically went to a almost a negative profit category this home entertainment home video whatever you want to call it and now they don't even break it out in the uh the numbers now for q1 mm-hmm. so that you can argue there's some businesses that are going to go away the idea of physical media being sold yeah it's going to go away but i would argue licensing is not one of those businesses licensing is not a business that i would say oh yeah the the advent of the internet means we don't need licensing anymore you know we still, we still need toys and video yeah. games and 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 there's opportunity there, right? And especially because it's low risk opportunity. Because what's the worst thing that happens? Their licensee doesn't sell the product. Well, you know what? You're getting a royalty. What's the best thing that happens? The licensee sells a whole bunch of Austin 316 shirts. Great, you're getting a cut of all that. And, and yeah, licensing is usually the uh, segment that has the highest uh, profit margin, right? Because it's it's you're just giving somebody else the permission to use your IP. Yeah, imagine if you had like an XFL trademark or something and you know, it's such a high profit thing. You wouldn't want to give that away for nothing. That's right. You want a lot of money for that. <laughs> WWE revealed that they are in fact uh having a minority stake in Alpha Entertainment, the uh the Vince McMahon's XFL launch. As of, um, as of April third, I believe they were gifted some ownership of yeah. Alpha Entertainment. A way to explain why they are letting them use all their their social media and and everything else to kind of promote XFL employees time and yeah uh, WWE Shop that's another one where you could argue you can do better and and they have so it was a seventeen eighteen million dollar business back in the mid two thousands it was only a twenty million dollar business in twenty fourteen it was a thirty five million dollar business in twenty sixteen it was a thirty eight million dollar business in twenty seventeen and they've done that a couple different ways number one. Uh, international partners, you know, getting Amazon, getting the sold store in India, uh, especially Amazon UK, 
uh, going around and finding those new opportunities there. Even in China, I think they have like a, a special China shop partner that helps them sell gear. So that, that sort of thing is going to be super valuable to them. Number two is is DTC marketing, right? Direct to consumer. If you know what they like and you know what they want and you start sending it to them, if you send me a Funaki shirt tomorrow, I would buy it. You know, and and being able to bundle things and do them. Uh, uh, at the same time, you know. Is that why your blog is called Indeed Wrestling? It is. Did you just figure that out now? No, I figured. Okay. <laughs> yes. That is, in fact, why it is called Indeed Wrestling. Um. But yeah, all that stuff is like once you understand it and then also pushing the big holiday. So Christmas obviously being the big holiday that they really have a huge Q4 and just, you know, the, like they say, the, the closer they can get, if they can integrate that with the WWE Network, that is the next level. Um, and then lastly, you have things like WWE Studios and it has been in my mind an object failure. <laughs> but that is just what's what that I, movie that we might watch next. We might. Oh, gosh. The Countdown, I think it was called. The Countdown. This is the movie where. Rusev is in his wrestling gear and he pulls a gun on Dolph Ziggler. Yeah, the 2016 film. We'll see, but you don't have a Blu-ray player, so I'm, I might have to find a DVD for you. Yeah, we're going to have to figure some way to... Uh... <laughs> Probably sell it, just watch it on Amazon. It'll be like six bucks. Six dollars to watch that? Hey, man, we're getting paid. You'll get, you're getting paid for it, remember? So uh, that's going on. And then there's small segments like Corporate and Other, which you know, in some ways is appearance fees and stuff like that that shows up for WWE. Um, but it's, I think we talked about the signings that are advertised through WWE.com. That's where that's going. <laughs> you know, and actually I, I did miss one digital media, um, the digital media stuff, uh, which, you know, WWE.com back in 2006 was an $11 million business in 2012 was a $20 million business. Today is a $35 million business. And a lot of that is probably coming through YouTube royalties, right? Yeah. Maybe Hulu money. Um, no, Hulu is TV. We've had this discussion before. Okay. Hulu, Hulu is TV. But uh, but digital media would be yeah I think it's any any advertisement they're selling on w dot com and I think the probably the bigger piece at this point is YouTube revenue yeah YouTube revenue they they sold a Snapchat filter one time about New Day they sell like Ed AR things so Nakamura can show up in your house and give you a nut shot you know there's all sorts of cool stuff out there mm-hmm. um. But yeah, it's it's intriguing to me to see how that's that's changed over time. I think at some point it would be fun to go through their legal spend kind of year over year and just look at that a little bit more closely in, in corporate and other uh, some of the other things that they've spent on. But it, it says to me, you know, WWE top line, WWE Network, they've done a good job with um, centering on what they can do and then lowering the cost per per quarter on what they're spending. Uh, one day we'll find out whether being associated with BAM tech is the best or the worst for them, because obviously, you know, the, the, it's great that someone else deals with so much of that stuff, but it's bad on in the long run because you're always going to be, you know, paying someone else to do a service that you probably over the long run could do cheaper. And the search it's, function is still terrible. And yes. And, and there's a, a, there's a huge argument to be made that tiering the network correctly could generate an enormous amount of revenue. The biggest question to me is how do you deal with WrestleMania on that network? structure such way that you you don't alienate everyone um not, not, i've argued they have to keep wrestling on 9.99 or otherwise it's gonna cause them problems but yep uh on live events you know volume is an interesting model but the problem is that that means that you're treating uh your performers more and more like cattle because it's hard to you know ask more and more people to be How doing treat more, them more, shows? more like cattle well you know you could because think about it when when we look here the number of shows that people work over time it's interesting to see, you know, cases where it's gone, you know, back in the 80s, you'd have guys who worked well over 200 
25 shows a, a year. Mm-hmm. This year, you know, you're lucky if anybody breaks 180. So, I mean, you, 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 there is an element there. Well, hey, they just gave half the roster a weekend off. <laughs> the fairer half, as they would say. Um, so we, we have that. Uh, but at the same time, I do think there's a limit to how much price gouging you can do to your rest, to your fans before they just start, you know, kind of walking away from it. And we already see that with some house shows, right? Like it, it makes sense to pay big money for uh, uh, WrestleMania, but it doesn't make sense to pay big money for a house show. And at a certain point, you almost wonder, are you alienating the the younger demographic, the cheaper demographic, all these different groups here when you are as a product need to monopolize the the people you have left? What do you mean by that? Like ratings are at best flat. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily generate, you know, TV ratings still keep skewing older and older. Yeah. So because older we, and older people are the only people left that are using traditional TV. Yes more, and no. More more. Other other shows are not skewing like that. NBA and things are not skewing like that. Hmm. So there there is an element to say that there's other television shows that have found new audiences that are younger and or replenished or maintained their audiences. Whereas mm-hmm. wrestling has just aged and aged and aged. So is UFC, UFC for that matter. Mm-hmm. So I, I just get worried that, you know, you I, like they say, one of their goals is to reconnect with the younger generation. And that's why I thought Jadar or JR's um, presentation of the Business Partner Summit was a little bit of lip service where he's just like eSports. But I think what you could do more is to actually wonder about what are you doing to create characters and, and personalities that do connect with them. And that's why, you know, the whole idea of like the masked Rey Mysterio wrestler is a powerful being. Yeah. When it comes to marketing. I mean, we need that too. And I, and I think we overlook uh, how new fans are created through things like video games and action mm-hmm. figures. People whose first experience with WWE or pro wrestling is not a TV program. It's a toy or a video game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was watching a video today where it's talking about four score games in NES. And it was talking about, you know, N64 was one of the first console systems that had four controller ports. And everyone remembers and they show like WCW versus the world or something. Mm-hmm. And and I was just like, yeah, that's very true. That was kind of like the mentality of like when you thought about that that sort of thing. And, and I don't think non-wrestling fans buy a lot of wrestling games unless it's, you know, coming in through kind of a, a side door type thing, like, you know, the, 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 the bejeweled type wrestling game or something. Mm-hmm. But maybe you have a brother or a cousin or whoever, or you have a friend who, who is sort of a wrestling fan enough to have a wrestling game. And that's your first exposure to wrestling is this video game at your friend's house. And, and you could argue that's why they try to go into these non wrestling type games. So like, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the battler, type thing like a fighting game like they had uh for wwe immortals or whatever it was where you're trying to grab people who are not wrestling fans but want to play a game like this Mm. i am waiting for the simulation bookers you know the the economic simulators uh wrestling games i i look forward to developing and consulting on those uh tv like we talked about tv is going to do very well that that is the area that they know that they can monopolize and they can do well on home videos we assume are not coming back you know the fact they rolled them in they won't give us any details kind of says a lot about how little they think of them uh digital media big opportunity there i think we we deserve to ask more questions about where they're growing it from because the rate at which it's growing i think it would be more interesting to understand where it's really coming from because i don't know whether youtube is the single answer to all the the questions i think youtube's the easy answer but i don't know if it's the actual answer for where is your growth going to come from in the long term? 
you know, well, Facebook it, Watch, other things. That those those are interesting avenues. Yeah, they, they got some sort of rights fee for Facebook Watch. Um, I wonder what Facebook, that went to content, not to to. Well, did, they, did they didn't, even, go to break, didn't even break it out, so we don't know because yeah. they're not breaking it out like that anymore. But um, I think going forward, what's Facebook going to do with their free video? Are they going to put ads on it eventually? Probably. Is there going to be money for the content creators there? I hope so. So, I hope it ends up that WWE is advertising their network on the Facebook watch. And so it ends up with them just reporting their own revenue for their own advertising. And then it goes in a big circle. Um, shop, big opportunity there. I think anytime you're talking about e-commerce, there's always a bigger opportunity, especially when you're talking about creating a new hub. Uh, venue merchandise, it's always going to be a proportional percentage of what you get with the live event. And then the ability to integrate better with smartphones. And uh, yeah, at the end, you have studios, which I've, I've said my piece on, which hopefully someday will work. <laughs> For people uh, who care about this sort of thing, should George Barrows be a candidate for the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? Not yet. Not yet? Why not? Because uh, we haven't seen what the new uh, TV rights renewals are. Ah, is, is that, that, that the make or break? No, but it's a make or break. It, 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 honestly, I want him to go a year without getting sued for his TV rights deal, and then maybe we'll talk. Okay. And a minimum <laughs> of, of what? 1.6x on the uh, TV uh, rights deal? Domestic, yeah. U.S., yes. Not for, I, uh, actually, I mean, honestly, I'd say rolling out the tiered network would make him a genius. Like, that, that's honestly my thought, is that if you can roll out that tiered network in a, in a meaningful way, and it, it, you end up with higher revenue and better profit, mm-hmm. you've done it. Mm-hmm. And until you show me that, now you've you've just invested a lot of money because for as big as WWE is, they are not nearly the profitable standard that a lot of other companies of this size are. And money will follow the eyeballs. Yeah, I mean that's that's his big is when when Facebook buys WWE, when WWE sells in an M and A to someone else, or when a digital player pays WWE, you know, a ridiculous ca- uh, multiplier versus what what they get paid now. Those would be the times when I'd say, yep, you win. You've done it. You, you've convinced people that wrestling is worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when wrestling makes more money than hockey, when wrestling makes more money than, than something else like that, then I would say, yeah. When they figure out how to make stars, maybe. Maybe that too. Maybe. But George well, is not you know, in, as involved in that. Sean Rollins is going to be the next big guy. What can I say? I mean, I mean look at, look at uh, Ricky the Steamboat Dragon. I mean, he was a huge star. And uh, his other favorite wrestler, Andre the Giant. Who's Stephanie's best friend? So I'm always it, looking. For people, we were shocked when people wanted more in-ring content. Tell me about New Japan. New Japan just had a, a two-day event at the Fukuoka International, I believe, Convention Center is the name of the venue. So in previous years, they uh, had only done one show at uh, as, as their Don Taku event in Fukuoka. And if I could find the data here, uh, it's somewhere in this document. Uh, which but is it's available. not the dome, right? It is not the Dome. They haven't run the Dome, I believe, since 2001, Got it. Which, which was not that great of a year for New Japan. It's sort of a, ter- a turning point in, in their uh, diminishing popularity. But yeah, so we're going to go back and we're going to talk about 2015 where they drew 5,180 people for a main event of Hiroki Goto over Shinsuke Nakamura for the IC title. So then the following year, they did a little bit better and they did about 5,300 people for a main event of Naito over Tomohiro Ishii for the IWGB heavyweight title. The following year, still even a little bit better uh, with 6,000 
126 people for Okada over Bad Luck Fale. So the tenants going up and up those three years, 2015, 16, 17. This year, they're not just going to do, or they've already done it, but they just they didn't just do one event, but they did two events for uh, Fukuoka. And this was day one, had a main event of Kenny Omega over Hangman Page. Underneath, there was Cody going over Kota Ibushi. 4,000 people uh, drawn for that one. And then the, the second day, which was main evented by Okada versus Tanahashi, the, uh, the classic New Japan uh, singles match there. With 6,307, the uh, the attendance that New Japan reported there, which is higher than uh, any of the three years that I uh, just went over just now. So, and, and when did Jericho show up? Jericho did a run-in on the second night after uh, after Naito's, I believe it's eight-man, eight or ten-man tag. He did a Jericho did a run-in as Naito was walking to the back and as if he was a fan and, and wearing a mask, beat him up, threw him in the ring, took the mask off, revealed himself as Eddie Izzard. And uh, hit Naito with the ring bell, and Naito bled everywhere. So we we are setting this all up for what the Osaka Hall show coming up on June 9th? Yeah. So on June 9th, they're going to go to Osaka Joe Hall, which I believe is about a ten thousand seat building, uh, which they've done well at the last couple of years. And they're going to have Okada versus Kenny Omega in a two out of three falls no time limit match. And I think underneath that, they're going to do Jericho and Naito. I don't believe that's official yet, but uh, I don't think. Jericho versus Naito is happening on July 7th at the Cow Palace because I think Jericho is only doing stuff for them in Japan is the impression that I'm getting that he's not going to he's not going to dip his toe in that water and see what happens if he uh, works with New Japan in the US. And that was always my thought is that maybe he will do Japan stuff but I will be shocked the day that he shows up in a New Japan show in the United States if he's not unless he hasn't worked for WWE for a year. Yeah. Like not in a situation where he just did Saudi Arabia and was he back for the Rumble? I can't remember. Oh, he was back for Raw twenty five. Yeah, and and, and so and like for the Greatest Royal Rumble, he was at. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if if you're in a situation where you're on the outs with the company, that's one thing. Versus if you're in a situation where you just are choosing not to work for that company right now, I think he knows that Vince will not take as nicely to it. Mm-hmm. I I I honestly don't think that they view Japan so much as their domain yet. You know, mm-hmm. if they were running an NXT promotion out of there, then yeah, they might care, mm-hmm. but they really don't. And I gotta so say, they Jer- do care. You think WWE does care though about what w- what New Japan is doing in the U.S.? I think they especially care about WWE friendly talent being on New Japan shows in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think they do care to a degree about New Japan in the U.S. when it when it seems like they're going to have an actual momentum. So. You know, they're, they're going to run a Cow Palace show on the, the July 7th, right? And uh, Before we get too far ahead on, on that, I just want to mention there's an interview uh, on New Japan's official website with New Japan's chairman, Naoki Sugabayashi, where he mentions uh, if they sell out both of these Dantaku events in Fukuoka, that uh, maybe they'll run the dome, the Fukuoka dome, uh, the next year. So right now they only, of course, run one dome show per year. I'm, I'm sorry, is, do you mean the Yahoo Auction Dome? No, the Yahoo Auction Dome. Is that what the uh, Fukuoka Dome is called now? Yes, of course it is. Don't Excuse you know me. how big Yahoo Auction Dome is? No. no I'm 99% sure that is what it's called now. It, it, uh, yeah, the, yeah. It says that yeah, right here. Um, Yah, so excuse Yah-oku. me. The, the, the Yahoo Auction Dome, the, which is the Fukuoka Dome. Uh, of course, in, in years past, New Japan would run multiple dome shows, even multiple Tokyo Dome shows per year. But... Uh, 
at the moment, Wrestle Kingdom at the Tokyo Dome on January 4th is the only Tokyo Dome is the only dome show they're running. But uh, there's some speculation in this interview about, well, maybe if we sell out both nights in Fukuoka, maybe we'll run the dome, the Fukuoka Dome next year. That didn't quite happen, though. As, as we mentioned, about 4,000 people for night one and about 6,300 people for night two. So 6,300, I think, is, is roughly a sellout. Uh, so just short of a sellout, a couple thousand short of a sellout for night one. So they did not meet uh, Naito or Sugabayashi's uh, goals of, of selling out both nights. And and it speaks to, you know, there's opportunity in Japan for New Japan. And like Dave was talking about, it's not hard to get necessarily tens of thousands of fans to a big dome show there versus in the U.S. It's very hard to gather all that number of, of new Japan fans, because while there's many fans in the United States, they're not all centralized the way that you can get them in Tokyo or in this case in, in Fukuoka. Um, it's Fukuoka. The, 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 what? <laughs> so the, uh, the, the issue with the cow palace show is that they've got no matches announced for this. Um, I'm pulling up the Ticketmaster map right now. Uh, a lot of the floor floor is gone. Almost all of it's gone. A lot of the first level, 50-yard line seating, I would call it, is gone. But a lot of these upper-level seats are s- still available. So they've probably got a couple thousand sold here. But this is... is this a, what's the capacity for this? Do we know? 8,000 or so? Let's see. What does it say on Wikipedia? I, I want to say yes, because... Um, wow, Cow Palace. Um, it says basketball, 13,000. Ice hockey, 11,000. Concert, 16,500. So... Uh, hard to say. Um, I'm guessing it can hold, you know, ten more than ten thousand for sure. Uh, yeah, but, but the point is, they've done a couple of shows in Long Beach now, which were instant sellouts at much smaller venues, a, a couple thousand, and then I think the last one was about five thousand. Uh, but nobody knows what the matches are going to be for this show. They haven't even really got names advertised. I mean, you, you know who's probably going to be on there: uh, Omega, Okada, Tanahashi, people like that. But nobody knows what the matches are going to be because the matches are probably going to be set on June 9th at Dominion because they don't want to go ahead and say, oh, Okada is going to defend the title against so-and-so because Okada's got to defend the title against Omega first. So, I mean, that's how New Japan books. Um, yeah, and, and there's also the element of all-in, um, which is, you know, people are trying to plan out their schedules for where they're yeah. going to go. And you have WrestleMania. You We're have talking some about the, the traveling wrestling fan audience yeah and you have some people who went to long beach right and then now there's this other one coming up here and so suddenly it's like well i already you know did a big thing where i went there and maybe i don't have time to go twice a year um and and it's always going to be connected to what kind of a momentum a promotion has where i even think something like you know omega has some name value for new japan but omega is increasingly being exposed in the united states right so it's harder and harder to say, oh, I'm going to this one show because I get to see Kenny Omega. Well, there's a lot of shows now that I can go see with Kenny Omega on it, including this big all-in show. We saw him at WrestleCon. We saw him at WrestleCon. Yeah, exactly. That's my point is it's like it's harder and harder to make some of these guys seem like big stars because you you are um, – you you're, you have other promotions like ROH and whatnot that are also using some of the same talent. And so it's getting more and more fuzzy about what does it mean to be a New Japan show versus what does it mean to be an ROH New Japan show versus what does it mean to be the independent talent that also works New Japan show for certain elements. So that's that's going to play an element to it. And, and you know, to a degree, tickets. 
Um, one thing Dave pointed out is that you know when when AAA used to come to LA, Mexican fans would come or Mexican American fans would buy the tickets. But mm-hmm. when New Japan comes to San Francisco, you don't see Japanese American fans being like, "Oh my gosh, I want to get in on this." It, it mm-hmm. it's more the um, it, it it the way at least it appears is it's more the the wrestling fans that are coming out and watching this, which isn't a problem. Like that's fine, but it's just you're not getting that cultural crossover that in the past has really helped some California um, initiatives when it comes to international companies coming in. Yeah, and I would kind of argue that the the market marketing opportunity that's been made available to New Japan in the United States is largely out of an, an area of wrestling fandom that W isn't fully satisfying. Like NXT does it to an extent, but uh, NXT isn't the major league. It's, it's WWE's minor league. And New Japan isn't as big as the main roster WWE, but it's, I guess it feels like it's bigger and their, their, their venues are bigger than most of NXT's venues, with the exception of takeovers, of course, right? But, but like NXT doesn't run a dome. But, uh, well, not, not except for like the Barclay Center type thing or something. But, but that's yeah. not a dome. But no, I mean, the no. dome is, is like 30,000. Well, they people, ran like, let's say. did they do the Alamo Dome? No, they ran somewhere else that night, the night before, right? But, right. but you also have the element of like, think about when New Japan went to New Zealand or to Australia. Like, they were also using a little bit of like, hey, this is, was it Bad Luck Fale or something? Like, the New, New Zealand wrestlers to kind mm-hmm. of push, push it forward or, or, um, Jay White, people like that. Like, there, there has been somewhat of an issue of like trying to push the fans that are pu- push certain the local stars. Yeah, like local start. And so, and we even saw it back in way back in the day where you know, like they talk about the Samoans. There was a big you know Pacific Islander population that used to go to the shows in California, and and so it was a big deal about getting the Samoans in and people like that. So I, I just think it's really interesting. Um, that, that New Japan is going to deal with this challenges here about, you know, what are they doing when they come to the U.S. and are they actually marketing themselves right? Because while they, they are really committed to the kayfabe of we can't announce the card, the reality is plane tickets uh, are based on the card to me a lot more than that. Do I think it will be a good show either way? Probably. Probably. Right. And, and if, if, if I have to wait until the morning of June 9th to find out what this card is, that gives me less than a month to make my travel plans and buy plane tickets, which are going to be much more expensive less than 30 days out than they would be a few months out. Yeah, you know? and so it's also just possible that you know there's so many factors for when something works and when something's new and hot, and you can't go back and be first time ever, right? Mm-hmm. So we already had first time ever. We already had second time ever. And so it's now you're you're getting into the you're you're past the honeymoon phase, and it, it feels we're different. See pretty soon what the what the steady state is for New Japan's appeal as and, a live event in the U.S. And and I do really strongly feel that like the delusion, delusion coming from All In and from ROH does hurt them because it's harder yeah. to have this identity that's your own when I can go to WrestleCon and see a show that has New Japan stars on it. Yeah, I versus think all, all in maybe hurting Ring of Honor's attendance right now. Yeah, so I find that intriguing, and you know, I, I'm not going to go out to to the Cal Palace show, um, but just because I don't have plans to go out to California at that time of the year, um, I am hoping to go to All In. Uh, I am planning to go to All In. I don't know how many days I'll go to All In though. Um, no, you know, I'm I'm thinking about it. We we got the tickets though, right? We have the ticket. We have plane tickets. I have, I have a plane ticket. Oh, I meant we have the tickets prices. It's going to go on sale. I we think. We do. Uh, in about a week from now, 
uh, I think it's May 13th or so, it's going to go on sale. And so we know that there's basically six tiers of tickets. There's yes. um, $153 tickets for the ringside, which actually seems very reasonable to me. Um, 128 for second row, which uh, also sounds reasonable to me. Uh, I just don't know whether anyone's going to be able to get those tickets. That's my biggest concern. We have about $100 tickets for other floor seating, which I, I you know, if it's a good show, it's a good show. If it's not a good show, then you're going to feel cheated. Uh, $78 tickets for basically lower, like first risers plus um, on either side of the ring, the, the, the kind of first actual balcony or whatever you want to call that. Uh, then you have... $53 tickets, which is almost everywhere else if you don't have a nosebleed. And then it's $28 if you're going to give yourself a nosebleed by going up to the second floor. Which is so, probably what I would do. Um, really? See, you. for me, I'm I would, always cheap. I want to be at the highest point, too, to, to like take in the show and take in the crowd rather than be real close so I can see real close. Nah, I'll just be at the top. See, I'm, I'm the exact opposite where I'll be I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend... And I'm cheap, too. Probably you know, a hundred bucks for a pair of tickets. Um, because, uh, I think my buddy who lives in Chicago is going to go to see this with me. And so we'll, we'll try to get, you know, I'll try to get the best tickets I can. Uh, and I would just debate whether or not the Sears center arena, which is just outside of Chicago. Yeah. So my buddy lives in Vernon Hills, which is outside. I think it's like, I don't, I don't want to say Schamberger, Illinois, but it's something like that. Some name similar to that. So it, it, he, it lives like in the other direction of Chicago, and the arena is kind of like between him and Chicago. So it's actually nice because it won't be like, you know, we'll be going the same direction. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to this. You know, I'm hoping we meet up with the VOW guys. I'm hoping to meet up with uh, 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 Waiting and, and John Pollock and some other people while we're there. And, uh, you know, there's going to be StarCast. There's going to be a big festival thing going on. And so hopefully that's successful for everybody who's getting involved with that. I think Ring uh, uh, Wrestling Observer is going to do some event uh, with some Q and a there it might be fun to go to that again. So we'll see. And, uh, we've, we've, uh, we've gotten a PDF that tells us about how we can be a part of Starcast, but I don't think we're going to be a part of it. I, I don't think we will be part of the formal Starcast event, but hopefully we can talk to people and do a podcast while we're there. And I think yeah. you're investing in some new equipment, some space helmets, oh, anti-gravity right. suits, all sorts of good stuff. So some moon boots, yeah. Some uh, we yeah we may be improving some of the audio quality here. Not not the content, just the just no. the fidelity. <laughs> We've maxed out on the on the content quality. I think. I think we have. So, um, WrestleNomics Premium this week, you can listen. You can hear about WWQ one results in in great detail. The conference call we go all through. We talk a ton about the movie The Wrestler, the nineteen seventy four AWA Vern Gagne, uh, Mary Sue movie. Um, and then we also talk a bunch in the middle there of the show about the economics of running an indie show where we yeah. break down all our ideas for what the cost might be for a New York based indie show. And then we kind of say, what are the discretionary costs that are just used to bribe the officials so that you can run the show or not? Mm-hmm. And do we want to, let's, let's close just real quickly with a, with a slap story from, um, Naoki Sukabayashi. Have you, have you heard this story? I haven't heard this one in particular. I mean, I know Inoki's famous for slapping his, giving the fighting spirit to people through the form of a slap. Because he was doing this interview. And I, I guess I didn't, I didn't know this, that Sugabayashi has been with the company for a very long time. Um, he's not uh, somebody new who came in with Bushi Road, apparently. So there, he's talking about back in 1993 when they did the first Dontaku show in Fukuoka. Um, 
The interviewer, interviewer asks him, before, you, before the show, you met an, with Anoki and tasted one of his legendary slaps. Sukabayashi says, yes. Bef- right before showtime, I'm at my busiest, and the head of sales tells me to go and greet Anoki. So three of us from sales uh, are in the locker room saying, thank you, Mr. Anoki, it's a sellout. But he was already in fighting mode. Uh, getting ready for war, says the interviewer. Sukabayashi says, he tells us to clench our teeth and then wax us one by one. Back then, the Anoki slap wasn't really a famous thing yet, so we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> one, of the staff thank- one of the staff actually thanked Anoki, said it fixed his sore neck. <laughs> yeah, and that's enough. So. Maybe when we go to All In, uh, we will, Brandon will offer to chop you sure. for, uh, to, to infuse you with some WrestleNimic spirit. Yeah, you'll have to sign a waiver, though. We'll, uh, Mookie will prepare a waiver for you to sign. He's the legal expert <laughs> Mookie, here. Mookie's wife will prepare wa- yeah, waivers, more likely. Yeah. Um, you want to hear the full show, go to patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Uh, it's going to be an ungodly number of hours. So y- it, should, it should give you a full week's worth of content is what I'm trying to say with this. is To, to say not that it's too much content. It's just don't listen to it all at once. You'll, you'll go mad. You'll get college credit, I think, for it, too. Yes, you will. Um, and the other things that are exciting is Brandon's got some events coming up. Are you wrestling next weekend? I'm wrestling on May 19th and right here in North Tonawana, New York, where I'll be taking on Simon Grimm, formerly known as Simon Gotch, for Empire State Wrestling. My goodness. Maybe we will get maybe, – maybe we can ask Simon uh, just, just kind of say, hey, I'm, when you got your paychecks for the different gates, what did they have the attendance written on them? Yeah. Maybe you, could, you could ask one of your friends about that as well. Yeah, my friends kayfabe me quite a lot. They might have even kayfabed a WrestleMania result to me. So I, you know, they, they keep it, they keep it close to the chest. So we don't we talk more about babies than we do about uh, uh, buys and payoffs. Well, as Verangania taught me, you know, you have to protect the business. You got to protect the business, and you know, as, as you've taught me, that these guys don't even know what's happening because Vince McMahon controls them all with an iron fist. He does. Haven't you watched the TV? Uh, if you want to contact me I'm on Twitter at Mukigana and also uh, WrestleNomics at gmail.com if you want to contact Brandon go to at Brandon Thurston and there's a terrific article about Brandon about the school he teaches at Grapplers Anonymous and about ESW the the federation that he works for very often Um, and you can find that it's linked on both my page and Brandon's page but um, it's it's, it's from the UB Spectrum which is the uh, University of Buffalo which is where I I graduated from with my philosophy degree, which I'm I'm now putting to great use here at WrestleNomics Radio, and it's by David Tunis Garcia, and uh, you know has a good picture of everybody doing um, neck bridges. So mm-hmm. I assume your neck bridge is very strong. It's all right. It's all right. It's got to be very strong. Man. It's all right. That's from a pepper class, though. I don't make people do bridges very often. Oh, it's just a prep class. You that that Pe- pepper. Uh, that, that's when oh. Pepper Parks was was. That's one of his nights. Oh, okay. I didn't even realize. Pe- does Pepper teach at Grapplers Anonymous? He uh, most Wednesdays he does he does the training, and I do the training on Mondays and Tuesdays. So it's like it's mostly active wrestlers on Wednesdays, and then Mondays and Tuesdays is where I teach people from the ground up. And I'm referring to it as Grapplers Anonymous. Is it actually just Graps Anonymous? No, that's that's the uh, URL grapsanonymous.com. But it is Grapplers Anonymous. Yeah, that's my understanding. That's what the T-shirts okay. say. And and Lackawanna is Lackawanna, uh, New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can even Lackawanna Six, if you've ever heard of them. I can even text to schedule my visit or tryout. Yes, please don't call though. <laughs> Only <laughs> is that text. Your, is that your number? 
do not call me. <laughs> Text only, or I'll get angry. Oh, that's pretty funny. Uh, and then uh, you, you have some seminars here that have been held in the past. With Ethan Page has stopped by, Braxton yeah. Sutter, uh, Bill Collier, Lex Luger, Chris yeah. Hero back in 2016 even came by. Uh, and then you've trained a whole bunch of people, including Puff, who's uh, uh, profiled in the uh, article here. And Wes Adams, as in the uh, – wasn't he a ref at one point? No, you, you probably don't know who he is. Oh, okay. We've Maybe trained um, Kevin Blackwood from scratch, who's a smash wrestler, Daniel Garcia, and uh, a lot of other people. Yep. That's wonderful. Well, congratulations, and, and I hope people – you know, there should be probably something on the website for Graphs Anonymous about this excellent article here something on the website oh if you click on press it's um it's there oh i should i should go to press i see you should read the entire website before you contact me about training otherwise i'll get very snippy with you and tell you to just look at the website i don't know it's not the most uh if i click start training is that where i want to learn what do you want to learn oh there we go before scheduling it will be very physically demanding it's very unlikely you'll enter the ring wow i should bring plenty of plenty of water Jeez. Stay hydrated. What if I don't pass? Uh, you get to do it again. Okay. Or you can just go in the back and work out forever, like some people have done. And uh, that's kind of what Puff did. And um, we have another guy named Nolan who's a, who's a referee who's doing that right now. I, I was, I was, you know, I always have my short-lived obsessions. And I had a moment where I was like, maybe I'll just train for the next year here and show up to the grappler school and try out. You should. Just to, just to prove should. I can. You should. Yeah, more I, than welcome. Yeah, that would be such a, a useful, useful thing for my life. For get me in to shape, it'd be great exercise. Get in shape and get my blood pressure under control, just for the purposes of, of a single gag. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, 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 I'll even book you to do, to do a seminar. You can. Uh, <laughs> I know what I I teach improv. If I did a seminar, sure. I'd have, oh you man, I give them a lesson on uh, economics and what they need to know about the wrestling business. I would just tell them, make sure that all the money, scratch it so they see if the ink runs. And if it does, you should. Wrestlenomics Radio, brought to you every week. Proud member of the Voices of Wrestling Network. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.